Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Beginning on verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the beautiful word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Well, the purpose of the church, I think, is to alert people to the universal reign of God in Christ. In the same way as that was the purpose of Israel, it was to alert people to the universal reign of Yahweh. So in Isaiah, there's, you know, Isaiah writes, how beautiful are the, the feet of those who bring good news, who declare how God reigns. In other words, the gospel... Uh, for Israel was Yahweh reigns, reigns and rules over all kingdoms and dominions. The Christian message is the same, except that reign and rule is exemplified and confirmed for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I would say how beautiful on the the feet of those who bring good news, who declare our God reigns through Christ. Now, alerting people to the reign or rule of, of, of God in Christ is is more than church growth, attracting more numbers, and it's more than saving the lost. It's actually saying there is an irreversible, non-negotiable truth at work here. God reigns whether no one on this planet acknowledges it. That that is an irreversible fact. So all we're doing is alerting people to that non-negotiable fact of history. Our God reigns, we want to alert people to it. So how do we do it? I'd say twofold. We announce it, we would speak about it, we would declare it, we would, that declaration could happen through conversation, through preaching, but through public praise and worship, we announce our God reigns. But I would say also, we do it by demonstrating it. We demonstrate what the reign of God looks like. So if we think the reign of God, when God's reign is complete and unfettered and, and, and visible to everybody, would that be a reign and rule of love, and grace, justice, peace, mercy? If the answer to that is yes, well, go and demonstrate it. Go and, go and act that out now. Show people what the world to come looks like here in the midst of the disorder of this world. 
So in that respect, churches used to argue about whether we do social action or we do evangelism. It's an irrelevant argument, if you ask me. We are alerting people to the reign of God and we will both announce it and demonstrate it. So one of the kind of ways I like to look at that is imagine that the, the world to come, when Jesus comes and everything is regenerated as was originally intended at creation. Imagine that's the biggest, most amazing blockbuster movie you can ever imagine. Our lives, the lives of churches, collectives, communities of faith, as well as individuals, is to be like a trailer of that upcoming feature. You know when you go to the, the movies, you see a trailer, you turn to the person next to you and say, oh, do you want to see that? Well, people ought to look at the church. They ought to look at individual Christians. And they ought to see a trailer of this world to come. They ought to see peace, justice, love, mercy, kindness. They also ought to see celebration and joy and delicious flavours and uh, beautiful life. I mean, they ought to look at it and think, oh, I'd like to see the whole thing. Well, I think that's the purpose of the church, to announce and to demonstrate the universal reign of God in Christ. And then, if the church grows, it's incidental. I think it will grow. If the lost gets saved, in a sense it's incidental, it's secondary. The primary goal is this alerting people to this uh, irreversible truth of, of God's reign. I might be willing to give a couple fingers to have an accent like that. I just love that. People who talk with that sort of accent, they just get listened to more. I mean, that's just a fact. I love Michael Frost's illustration to help us try to understand the role of the church in today's culture. I hope you were able to follow. He, he talked about the church being a preview of how the world could be if God were recognized as king. So the church, as he said, is like the trailer of a blockbuster movie. It's supposed to be a teaser and a taste of God's compelling goodness and love and how that goodness and grace plays out in a community of people, how it shapes the way a group of people relate to each other. And as others see this countercultural ethic lived out in the church, some people, not all, but some will say, Hey, I want to see more of that. Let's go check that out. It's a powerful vision of the church. It's a powerful picture of what the church is supposed to be about. And it's a powerful picture especially of what the church is supposed to be about in the midst of a culture like we currently live in. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea of living Christian in a post-Christian culture, how followers of Jesus dwell in this culture as witnesses of God's grace and goodness, and we've been using First Peter as our guide. We talked in the first week about how we are people who are living in exile in this post-Christian world. Last week, we talked about the priority of spiritual formation, of becoming primarily individuals who embody the virtue of Jesus. And today, we are turning our attention to the non-negotiable of community. Living on mission in a post-Christian world is a we thing, far more than it is a me thing or an I thing. There's ongoing discussion these days. You may run into it now and then. It's happening in various religious circles, and it's about the role of the church in today's culture and whether or not the church as we know it matters in today's culture, makes any difference in today's culture, or will survive through today's culture. Some write 
and teach about living missionally as if it is primarily or mostly an individual pursuit. So the church is whatever it is, but the whole deal is for us to individually go out into the world and proclaim and demonstrate the hope of Jesus. Lots of people, as you may know, particularly younger people, are kind of giving up on this whole idea of church, giving up on this whole idea of the communal peace in the form of what we now know as church. And if not giving up, even more common is the idea of church as optional. For those who are interested, good for them. For those who aren't, good for them. One thing that seems universally accepted these days is that today's culture continues to drift further and further away from the church. So if this is the church and this is the culture and maybe 30 years ago they were uh, this close to each other, now this is the culture and this is the church and they're just farther and farther away. And it's really hard for someone who has not grown up uh, in the church or around Christianity to make the long leap from the culture all the way into the church, as in all the way into something like this. And you have friends who I would imagine would feel the stretch of going from life in the culture to then one day showing up at this and feeling at home. So living on mission means the people of Jesus, as we often talk about, are sent out into the world, so we bring the church to the world, in other words, instead of waiting for the world to come to the church. But the question still remains, is that sending out just an individual endeavor where we each do our best to bring the light of Jesus into our particular corner of the world, or is mission more than an individual pursuit? Where does community fit in God's missional plan? In Peter's letter to these first century Christians who are scattered around the Roman Empire and facing increasing pressure and persecution for their faith, he emphasizes their life together as a faith community. He stresses their communal witness in the midst of their culture. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And if you let your mind think back to what you may have read or heard from the Old Testament in the past, hear him again speaking to the church, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. These are descriptions that the hearers would have associated with the nation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was God's special possession. But now Peter applies this same language to the church. He also says, you you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if we were living in the first century and we were part of one of these churches uh, that Peter was writing to, this is language associated with the temple in Jerusalem. But now here, Peter applies this language to describe the church as a spiritual house and holy priesthood offering sacrifices to God. So Peter locates the people of God and the temple of God in the church. And I just want us to let that sink in for a second. These are some pretty high stakes. He's locating the people of God and the temple of God in the church. And my hope today 
is that we will recognize the significance of our togetherness. Mission in today's world is a communal endeavor, not just an individual pursuit, where, in the language of the video we watched, through the quality and through the difference of our community, we alert the world that God reigns, and we become a compelling trailer of what life and the world is like When God reigns. So if you step back and say, well, I'm part of Oak Hills Church. To whatever degree you say that, what you are saying is, is that part of your job, part of our job, is to alert the world that God reigns and to become a compelling trailer of what life and the world could be like or will be like when God reigns. A, a, a guy named Richard Mao in a book called Uncommon Decency. He writes and puts it this way. To be a Christian is to belong to a community that is in the process of being made right. This means our message to the larger society will be credible only if we can invite, we can invite others to become more like us. If we are not able to point to our own communal life To illustrate the righteousness we want for everyone, our message is not credible. Now, that may have flown right over your head. It's a bit early for something so chewy, but that's a pretty big statement. If we are not able to point to our own communal life to illustrate the righteousness we want for everyone, our message is not credible. So here's how I'd like for us to proceed. I want you to imagine you are in a conversation with a friend of yours who did not grow up in church, has nothing to do with church, really doesn't know anything about God, has no memory of Christianity, and you are in some conversation with them in some relaxed setting, and they just come right out and ask you bluntly, so how does this Jesus guy actually make your church different from any other group or organization? say, the Rotary Club or the high school football fraternity of families and players and so forth, or the Chamber of Commerce. How does this Jesus guy make church different than those groups? Or we can just put it this way. If the church is a trailer of what the world could become, what virtues should we as the church embody? What are the church's characteristics that in fact make it a compelling alternative to the culture? And I'm going to list three such virtues or three such characteristics. And the first is that we embody community community, and we practice community instead of individualism. Now, we've said this many, many times over the years. The Christian faith at its core is communal. It is not only an individual pursuit. You may be wondering if we've said it so much over the years and you just got done saying it a bunch of times, why are you continuing to say it? And the reason I'm continuing to say it is because in the culture that we're now in and what all of us experience is this resistance to the communal and a preference for the individual. So a community faith, a communal faith means faith is lived out with others. The Christian faith is lived out with others. Privatized faith, this, well, it's just me and God kind of stuff, is our invention. 
God desires that we journey with others. So community, relationship, is not an optional accessory we can take or leave. In the passage we read, and most of the time in the New Testament, the vast majority of the time, certainly the default setting you can have, is that when we read things like, you come to him the living stone, or you are a chosen people, the you, most of the time in the New Testament, is a plural you. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Now you are a community. There is connectedness. There is togetherness. It's a we thing. In today's American culture, you know this as well as I do, individualism is highly treasured, and people are trained to think of self first, and we have all been trained to think of self first, to go it alone, do it alone, solve it alone, and decide on our own. And this individualism, we all know this, has influenced our Christian experience and not for the better. So we make important decisions, as an example, about our finances or about our job or future or career, where we're going to live, or about our spiritual formation. But we make these important decisions on our own. We do what we think is best for us, but we don't often invite the community of faith into these important decisions to help us discern what God's best is. And it all seems fine to us because we are Americans and we prize our individualism. Peter says to these followers of Jesus who are under a lot of pressure, remember, you are a people. You are a community. You are in this together. You urge one another along. And in our day, a priority on community, mutually submissive community, makes the church an alternative in a culture where individualism is supremely valued. So if it is our intention to live Christian in a post-Christian world, if we as an individual say, yeah, I want to do that, I want to live Christian in this post-Christian context, then we have to live in community with other Christ followers, relying on one another, leaning into one another, loving each other, being with each other at important times. It is life connected to others at deep and sustaining levels. At the gym where I work out, they have group workouts. I I participate in them all the time. And it's intended, I suppose, among other things, to foster some kind of community. But I have to say this, this, maybe this is a confession, but I'm there as an individual. I go for me. I'm there with a group, but it is about me. It is not at all about we. It's something I do. I am, in in a sense, with others, but I'm not really with others. I'm there to get what I want. I'm there to get what I need. And once I get what I want and get what I need, I leave. And so the whole community part of it is just optional. And here's the thing. That might work okay at a gym. But the church is not designed like this. It's actually supposed to be an alternative to this. Church is a we thing, not a me thing. Its purpose is not and cannot be fulfilled when we gets replaced with me. And here's the point. Part of our mission in this culture is to invite others into the community we are experiencing so that others can see the difference Jesus makes in those relationships. Others can see how we love each other deeply 
as Peter says in chapter 4. We incarnate the ethics of the kingdom of God and the virtues of our king in community, in relationship. We relate to each other differently because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone who brings us together and who holds us together. Now, I want to be clear about something. As we think about this kind of alternative community and being on mission as a community, I don't really mean this gathering right here. We've talked a lot about the importance of this gathering. I'm not going to repeat all that. But this, as we, as I said earlier, is too far removed from where many in the culture currently are. It's just too big of a leap if you're in the culture and you want to get into the community of the church. That's a long jump. So we need, in fact, smaller communities of Christ, smaller communities of Christ followers who are gathering together, not so much at a church service, but they're gathering together in homes and around tables, and they're inviting those who are not Christ followers into those gatherings, and they're trusting God for what will happen. Let me give you some examples. I am aware, became aware recently of a church in Napa, California. Now, when I say Napa, California, you know what comes to your mind first. Well, at this church in Napa, California, they are trying to be present in their culture. So this particular church has this thing they do every month where they invite people from all around the community to get together and drink wine and nibble on cheese, and they're trying to provoke meaningful discussions about important subjects, you know, something beyond, hmm, this Cabernet has hints of cherry and chocolate in it. They're trying to get something going that's more substantial in this church, in this community, around this uh, shared commonality of wine. What they're trying to do, in other words, is extend the community of the church that happens here closer to the culture over here. And they're doing it by Christians and non-Christians gathering together and talking about things that matter and with the expectation that God will somehow show up. Give you another example. There are a couple people in our church who this coming January are going to be starting a group. And the question that has sort of captivated them is, how do we gather together as Christians and pursue spiritual formation while still making room for those who are outside of the faith? What do these gatherings look like? What kinds of things should we be doing in those settings? What kinds of conversations should we be having? How much is too much? What can we talk about? What can't we talk about? But what they're attempting to do is to extend the community that happens over here in what we call church and get it closer to the culture over here. And these are the kinds of experiments, wild experiments, free experiments, out-of-the-box experiments to draw people together and see what God will do. See, we need small groups right now that are learning to turn and look outward, not just inward. Give you another example. There's someone in our church who is in the process of launching a new business. And I am just really jacked up about this. I went and visited with this guy and his uh, venture that is going on recently. I walked through it. I saw it. I've known what his heart is throughout this process. He's starting a co-working business, meaning he's 
rent, uh, buying and renovating space, and he is going to make that space available for a fee to other small business people and entrepreneurs who are looking for places that they can rent so they can do their work. And he wants to draw these people together in this space. And he's trying to figure out how do we bring kingdom ethics into this space when there will be people all around here who could care less about kingdom ethics. How do we bring the right people in here who can represent the reality of Christ, but not too many where you run everybody off? And he's thinking all of this through. And the whole idea of a community that's not here at the church, it's not here at the culture, it's somewhere here where you get this going and you trust what God will do. There's another group that is intending to start sometime after Christmas in the new year comprised of some younger people who have a passion to gather other folks that are in their situation around a dinner table, and somehow, in some way, get conversation going and trust that God will do something in those settings. So here's what this all whittles down to, and then I'm going to move on. What it whittles down to is that if you are seeking to follow after Jesus, you have to be in a group. There's just no way to say, well, that's not for me. If that's not for you, then following Jesus isn't for you. Because following Jesus in the biblical way is about doing it with other people in community. So you have to be with others in a community where these are the kinds of things that are grappled with and talked about and pursued. And so if you're here and you don't have a group and you want to get in a group or you want to find out more about it or take just one simple step, there's out in the lobby, there's the community booth, there's a sign-up sheet there, not for a particular group, but tell me more about a group. You put your name on there and some way to get a hold of you, and we will. Second thing that is characteristic of the church in this culture is the idea that we offer dignity instead of degrading people. Peter says in verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. Now think about this. Royalty is inherited, right? It's a bloodline thing. You either have it or you don't. So too the priesthood. Either you are part of the tribe of Levi or you are not. But here, Peter says to those who are Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, rich and poor, male and female, insiders and outsiders, he says to them all, you are a royal priesthood. And in that statement, he blew apart the prevailing categories and structures and hierarchy of the culture. And the ethics of the church should always blow apart the prevailing categories and structures and hierarchies of the culture. One of the constant teachings in the New Testament is that in the church, the hierarchical structures that shape society fade away. In Christ, people are with one another in mutual Relationship, The game of thrones, if you will, is not the way of the church. The church is not top-down or power over. It is eyeball to eyeball, brother and sister, rooted in love. And so the differences that define people and give them power and give them place and give them prestige and identity in the world are obliterated by the grace of God. As we often say around here, the Lord's table 
levels the ground. And all of the prestige and power and reputation and resume that matters in the culture doesn't matter at all in the church. So in the first century culture, the Christian community was a mind-boggling, upside-down, and counter-cultural trailer offering a preview of what the world could become if it recognized God as king. Why? Because, for one, women were esteemed in the first century church. Servants were esteemed. The poor had something the rich desperately needed, so they shared a table together. The old needed the young, and the young needed the old. The thrust of the New Testament is a new ethic where social status faded away and mutual relationship of brother and sister in and through Christ took over. And this politic, this way of being together, this way a group relates to one another, this way of relating to each other in shared dignity, we might say, shattered cultural ethics. The walls between Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, crumbled down. And as the wall crumbled, the culture noticed it. It captured their attention. You see where this is heading. See, our politic, to use that word, as a Christian community, should shatter cultural ethics. Meaning, the way we are together should shatter cultural ethics. The way we are with others outside should shatter cultural ethics. The primary politic that should capture our attention as followers of Jesus is not the Republicans' agenda and it is not the Democrats' agenda. It is the politic of the church, the way we relate to each other, the virtues that characterize our interactions, the way we make room for those who are different than we are, the value we place on difference, the dignity we give to those who have different status, incomes, ethnicities, different opinions about this or that. The church should be a dramatic alternative to the contentious, argumentative, belligerent, hierarchical, and degrading ethic that is growing so fast in our culture. We dignify others instead of degrading them. One of the things that flows from us to one another and flows from us to the culture and flows from us to those who are not like us is dignity instead of degrading. Richard Mao again in Uncommon Decency. Here is an important lesson for our present day world, which is so torn apart by ethnic, racial and religious antagonisms. God wants us to offer a fundamental respect to others purely on the basis of their humanness. Christians and Muslims, African Americans and Jewish Americans, heterosexuals and homosexuals, rich and poor, all are created in the divine likeness. In affirming the stranger, we are honoring the image of God. I mean, this is just so down to the basics that one of the ways we distinguish ourselves, one of the ways we offer a preview of what the world would be like if God were to reign over it is exactly what Jerry prayed a minute ago. 
we recognize that God loves people. And He dignifies them because they're made in His image. And as the church, we simply walk right behind that and do exactly the same thing. The shooting at the Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh is antichrist. Hate is antichrist. Racism is antichrist. Sexual abuse is antichrist. Misogyny is antichrist. Vitriolic rhetoric is antichrist. Living Christian in a a post-Christian world means we boldly confront language and attitudes that degrade and we demonstrate giving people dignity because they're made in God's image. In a world increasingly divided over differences, I don't need to say this, but I just can't think of a more powerful witness than for the church to dignify people of different ethnicities, genders, political ideologies, personalities, ages, colors, background, whatever. You name it. Treat them with love and respect. Treat them with dignity. A week or so ago, we had a funeral here, and it was by far the most powerful funeral that I have ever officiated at. I experienced a deep level of conviction for a variety of reasons at this funeral, but during the funeral, there was a sharing time, and as we often do, we... uh, Asked the family how they want to do this. This family wanted to select certain people to come and share during the funeral versus just open it up wide open. But in the middle of this pre-selected sharing time, a guy in the back of the room went and talked to someone who had just shared and who no one had any idea what he was saying. But after one of the scheduled people started walking down, this fellow started walking up. Uh, he wasn't on the list. He wasn't in the schedule. We hadn't planned for it. But he came walking forward, took the microphone, and started to share. And he started talking about who he was. And one of the things he said is that he had recently been paroled from Folsom Prison after spending 20 years in Folsom Prison. About halfway through what he was saying, he said, I just feel like I need to sing. And he started singing Amazing Grace. Now, all this is happening. You know this. I mean, we like to plan things out around here, right? I mean, we like it down to the minute. And he was interrupting all that. But he got into this sharing moment where he was talking about the deceased. And with tears coming out of him, he started to say things like this. He visited me. He loved me. He believed in me. He cared for me when everyone else stopped caring. He didn't quit on me when everyone else quit on me. He saw the good in me when my own family stopped seeing the good in me. And he just went on and on and on. And what he was saying was he dignified me when everyone else discarded and degraded me. And I've thought about that ever since it happened. Thinking communities of Christians need to embody this ethic of reaching out to those who are ignored, who are forgotten, who are labeled, who are degraded in clear ways and subtle ways, the Christian church should be at the forefront of inviting people who are in those situations into our lives, into our homes, and into our gatherings. And in doing so, we become a preview, a trailer, of what the world would be like if God were king. 
Third attribute I want to mention is mercy instead of judgment. Peter in verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He almost throws us in at the end of the passage we read. It kind of hangs there without a clear connection to the overall point, except remember their situation. They're being pressured. They're being persecuted. These powerful Romans are bearing down on them. They're hassling them. They're causing these Christians distress. Peter's readers had received the mercy of God, the compassion of God. When they were far gone, God was merciful to them. He had compassion on them. He didn't give them what they deserved. He gave them what they needed, which was love, grace, forgiveness. God was merciful to them. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I wonder if in some way Peter is saying to them, I know what you want to do to those who are hassling you. But once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I would just encourage us for a second to let this sink in, because this is one of those truths that if it gets in, can be transformative. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is Kingdom Ethics 101 in a post-Christian culture. Once you had not received mercy, you were in a vulnerable position. You were a viable candidate to get paid back. You actually deserved God's justice. But now you have received mercy. You have received mercy from God himself, from the highest authority, from the greatest power. So Peter is telling them to be a merciful Community. He is saying that one of the ways that we embody this new ethic and demonstrate who God is and what it's like to live under His reign is that we are a merciful community. We offer mercy to those who falter and fail and misstep and blunder. We offer mercy to those who mistreat us. We do not return evil for evil, but we return blessing. See, this is the ethics of the kingdom lived out in our communities of faith. The virtue of King Jesus lived out in our communities of faith. Mercy to one another and mercy to the culture. Think about the impression people have of Christians today. And I'll just ask, are we seen as merciful or are we seen as judgmental? Just think about the damage, the extraordinary damage the judgmentalism of Christians has done to our witness in this culture. The anger that has flowed out of Christians, the disgust that we demonstrate, the fighting that goes on. And ask the question, does that uphold our witness or tear it down? I think there are two implications of this issue of mercy. There are those in our lives who have wronged us. I'm sure, as you think about it, it doesn't take long to think of someone who's wronged you, harmed you. And this all gets us thinking about the mercy we extend to them, the compassion we have on them, or the judgment we drop on them. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. I'm convinced one of the biggest hurdles Christians have in their lives is the inability to forgive those who have harmed them. They just can't find mercy to give. And it's been that way so long, they don't even think about it much anymore. It's just the way it is. It's just how they are. 
mercy, compassion toward those who deserve otherwise is really no longer an option. What personal transformation would happen if Jesus were to change us? What witness would happen if Jesus were to change us? If Jesus were to get down where the bitterness is and actually transform it, and we started to have mercy. And the other implication is mercy as an attitude toward the culture. A vibe we give off toward the culture, especially to those who reject the way of Jesus? Do we show mercy to those who want nothing to do with God and who speak against Him and against the church? Are we merciful or do we swing the hammer of judgment? Are we merciful or are we disgusted, frustrated, shaking our heads? I have to say, I don't find that kind of reaction in the New Testament. I don't find that kind of reaction in the life of Jesus when he was pressured and pushed and persecuted. I don't find Jesus swinging the hammer of judgment. Always in a posture of mercy. Always compassionate for the, uh, toward the prodigal. Now, let me finish this up. I realize that this community thing bugs some of us. It's kind of this, oh boy, just leave me alone. Let me do my own thing. I, I, I get it. We're supposed to be in community. I get it. It's supposed to be a we thing. I've heard it about 10,000 times. Just let me be. Let me do my own thing. So I hope you hear this. The emphasis on community in a post-Christian culture is not to irritate or cajole people into doing what they don't want to do. The emphasis on community is simply because it is a priority of Jesus. And this is where this gets kind of fun. Community is where we demonstrate the difference Jesus makes in our interactions and in our relationships. It's where love comes to define us, as Jesus said it should. So the hopeful and the fun and the invigorating truth is God does indeed have a plan for his church. And it involves us being present in the culture and demonstrating to the culture the alternative way of Christ and the alternative ethics of the kingdom. God works through a people to reach a people. He's always done it this way. Through Israel to bless the world. Through the church to bless the world. We cannot lose the importance of the church as a community without harming our witness in the culture. And certainly, the absurdities the church has often authored give good reason for people to shake their heads at us. So we have to pursue God's high calling to be a countercultural presence. I realize that we are just talking in big-time, perhaps, idyllic terms here. But we have to pursue God's high calling to be a countercultural presence where His love and grace and mercy and dignity flows through us to one another and out into the culture. To be the church is a high calling with a high responsibility. And it is a great privilege. A great privilege to be the church that is committed to following where Jesus leads, no matter where it takes. And a great privilege to declare His greatness in the midst of the darkness. Let's pray together. We worship you today as our King, and we thank you for this calling, and we desire to be people who courageously live it out. Most of all, as we continue to learn how to be with one another, the politics 
of our gatherings, the way we are with each other, the mercy we extend, the dignity we give, the relationships we form. We pray that through this we might declare the reality of who you are and the goodness of your kingdom. And we need your creative help to know how to do this in this culture. And so we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.